happen. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the two, 2020 Leadership, excuse me, the Mindset Leadership Conference. I'm your host, Riley Jensen, and today I'm super excited to introduce uh, the Texas Tech defensive backs coach, Derek Jones. Derek, welcome to the program. I really appreciate you having me on. So, Derek, I, I have to say, I, I, I may have uh, stalked you a little bit on Twitter, and uh, I've been a longtime <laughs> follower with a bunch of coaches here out in the state of Utah. Um, I love your mindset. I, I love your mindset. I love, you know, hashtag APT, excuse me, AP2W. Um, I love the cheetah mindset. Talk to me a little bit about how your social media just kind of got started and, and, and what made you think, like, oh, this might be some good things to post, because you know, I, I call you the football preacher. Uh, you know, I could probably say amen to every one of your tweets. <laughs> you know, when we first got to Duke back in 2008, um, social media was really just getting going. I think you were coming kind of out of the MySpace era into the Facebook era. And one of the things I wanted to do was to be able to use uh, Facebook as a way to show parents, um, coaches, ministers, or whoever else, uh, who I was as an individual and who we were as a program. I mean, I think it's an easy way to reach a lot of people. And I think when you can allow people to see you um, with your family, to see the things you talk about, how you carry and conduct yourself in everyday life, that gives them a pretty good example, not knowing you uh, from afar, the type of person that you are. And I think, um, you know, it was probably 2008 in particular when I really started just getting up in the morning every day. I'm the son of uh, two ministers a mother and a father. And so every day I just kind of woke up wanting to say something or wanting to do something that I thought could help somebody. So I just put up one quote and kind of go on about my merry way. And, you know, it started to take off. And um, I guess a couple of years into it, you know, Twitter came about. And uh, my graduate assistant, Matt Guerrero, who's now the defensive coordinator at Duke, he came to me, he was like, coach, you got to get on Twitter. And I'm, I'm kind of one of those guys, I like to keep things simple. You know, I was a Facebook guy. It was working pretty good for me. So I really didn't want to tap in anything else. But he made me realize uh, that all the young people were on Twitter and the older people uh, was on Facebook. So what he did was he created me a Twitter page. And he said, Coach, all you got to do is just transfer your thoughts that you use on Facebook over to Twitter. Well, after being on Twitter for a few weeks, I shortly realized that, you know, he was telling the truth. But Facebook was a little bit different than Twitter for me. Um, the audience was different. You know, whereas you're talking to an older generation for the most part on Facebook, Twitter was generally geared toward prospects and high school coaches and high school teachers and educators or whatever. So I just kind of changed up the subject matter a little bit and started to relate my tweets uh, that I put up in the morning to um, the student athlete, you know, to the coach, something that people could use to be able to transfer messages. And it really picked up steam right out of the gate. And as my followers grew, I kind of got a beat on, you know, who I was talking to and who was listening. So I started to get up in the morning and I figured, you know, as a market employee for Duke University uh, and myself individually, I would just put up in the morning, you know, in the beginning, it was three quotes. And I would just let them circulate through the day. And you go back and look at your Twitter at lunchtime and you've got X amount of likes and, you know, people started to comment on it. But, you know, more so than marketing, more so than recruiting, after a while, I realized that it was helping people. And that's really what I became passionate about. Um, so it's what you see today. Yeah, man, it's it's an amazing. I think you have over 60,000 followers now. Um, you know, it's funny because 
you know, just high school coaches out in here in Utah. I'm sure you've never even met any of them personally. Constantly, I, I get a text like, oh, man, did you see Derek Jones' quote today? I'm like, no. And he's like, here, let me send it to you. And we're sharing it. We're talking about it with our players. We're, we're helping them to understand what it means to be a Division One athlete nowadays. And, and it's different. It's different than when you played. It's different than when I played way back in the day. And, uh, but I think the fundamental principles are the same. And so I think that's what's cool about your messaging and, and what's going on. Some people might call it old school. I call it winning school, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're about winning and you're about doing it in the old fashioned way, hard work and, and, and looking people in the eye and doing the right things when, when, when the chance comes. So I appreciate it. I really appreciate it, coach. Yeah. I really think when you look at, um, who we are as coaches, who we are as leaders, we're a product of something that we've gained, you know, along the way. And, you know, I was around a lot of people, most importantly, my father, you know, my father taught me long ago that, you know, you're the best example of how to do anything, regardless of what you're saying to people, regardless of what you're trying to sell to people, who you are, what they see on a consistent basis is what they learn from. And so I just try to be a shining light, you know, to a lot of people in that regard. And I think as coaches, you know, we have to be transparent. You know, you don't have to be perfect to be a good leader. And I think you have to admit your imperfections to people. And I think when people can see you admit the fact that you've been imperfect, that you've fallen short in some areas, they relate to you a lot better. Yeah, I agree. Coach, let me, let me, let me jump into to mental toughness and mindset a little bit, but before I do that, I just want, I, for, those, for those people that don't know you, and I'm interviewing you, talk to me a little bit about where you played, how you got your start in coaching. Tell us a little bit about your story and, and, and where you're from and, and all that stuff. Well, I'm from um, Woodruff, South Carolina. I played at a 2A high school in Woodruff, South Carolina under a very legendary coach, Willie Barner. He was one of the um, winningest high school coaches in America at the time I was playing. He's deceased now, but you know, very storied uh, high school coach, 10 state championships to his credit and a lot of credentials. So, uh, and he was at our high school for, I think, 45 years as the coach. So everybody in the community had played up underneath him and he was a legend in the state of South Carolina. So football is kind of uh, really big where I come from. And I got recruited to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, uh, out of high school. Um, the year I came out of high school, Stephen Davis, a good friend of mine, was the number one recruit in the country. So we got a lot of attention uh, from schools that would normally not come to that area to recruit because people would come there to see Steve and they'd ask around to see what other prospects was there. So I got recruited by a lot of people that had not put down roots in South Carolina as recruiting. And uh, Billy Brewer recruited me. I uh, went there and I redshirted my first year, but I played at Ole Miss for five years. Uh, went on to win the Chucky Mullins Award and um, really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I'd actually never thought about being a coach. My last college coach was Tommy Tuberville. And um, I was bouncing between playing arena football, Canadian football, trying to find my way. Really knew that I wasn't going to pursue a football dream for an um, extended period of time. So I went back to Ole Miss. My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was still there. And I ran into Coach Tuberville one day. And ironically, about the time I ran into him, I think the Dallas Cowboys had called my agent and wanted to bring me out. And I really didn't know what that meant. I thought they was going to sign me to a contract or something like that. But he quickly made me realize that that was just something that they do to get people on the roster to be able to get through their OTAs. And if they liked you, it's probably a one in a slim chance that you would make the squad. But he told me very clearly that he thought I needed to quit chasing that dream and he thought I needed to consider coaching. 
And at the time, like I said, I was a little bit uh, offended when he said that to me because, you know, naturally you think highly of yourself uh, when you're that age and you're naive about a lot of things. But here's a guy that had been coaching for a long time and he realized what the NFL was looking for. And he realized that five foot nine, I was not that guy. And he clearly was honest with me. He said, you know, you were a good player here. He said, but you were a better captain. You were a better leader. You always did a really good job of helping us recruit. We brought guys in. You've got great communication skills. You carry yourself the right way. He said, I think you need to consider coaching. He said, I've got a graduate assistant job that you can have uh, coming open uh, next semester. And he said, if you take it and you take it seriously, I guarantee you 10 years from now, you'll thank me for it. And, you know, I walked away kind of with my tail between my legs a little bit, but I thought about it and I knew he was exactly right. You know, although I had never thought about coaching, I felt like if somebody saw something in you that um, you maybe didn't see, then maybe you should try it. In worst case scenario, you know, it gave me a chance to work toward my master's and possibly moving on toward law school because in the back of my mind, I think, thought that's what I wanted to do. But again, you know, just talking to Coach Tuberville and taking that job, Coach Tuberville left to go be the head coach at Auburn. And Coach David Cutcliffe came in as the head coach and kept me on. And here I am 23 years later. Oh, what, a, what a cool story. And, uh, you know, what, what I hear in that story to me personally is a little bit of humility, right? And I, and I think you do have to have a championship mindset. You do have to feel like you could make it to the NFL. And you do have to feel like you could push yourself to the limit to do it. But also, there's a certain time, and I – I joke about this all the time with athletes as a mental performance coach, but there's sometimes somewhere sports will break your heart. <laughs> it will break your heart and it will not be pretty. Countless not be times. Pretty, right? And, and you, you know, there's very few people that get to re retire on their own terms. I don't even think Brett Favre retired on his own terms, right? right? I don't think your friend Stephen Davis probably didn't retire on his own terms, right? And he was an amazing football player. And so – I tell guys all the time, like, you got to be ready for that because as much as sports gives, it's going to take. It's going to take everything you got, and you better love it, and you better in, enjoy the parts that you do enjoy. But the humility that you had to, to take that feedback and go, God, he might be right. I mean, that's where growth takes place, doesn't it? Isn't, yeah. isn't humility where growth takes place when you're willing to accept, like, a truth that's spoken to you, even though it could be painful, and then move forward? Yeah, I think at some point in life, we've all got to grasp exactly what you said. You know, now that I'm 45 years old, as opposed to 23 years of, of age, when that happened, I look back at it and I realize that everything that we go through in life has a conclusion. And, you know, we have to be able to accept that conclusion. But at the same time, every time something concludes, something else begins. And I think individually, we have to be able to know when one chapter of our life ends and the other begins. And I think that's the problem a lot of people run into. You know, fortunately for me, I was open-minded enough to realize, uh, even though I didn't know what was in store for me, that somebody else was hope helping me, you know, to begin the next chapter of my life. And I was receptive to that. I think we can be hard-headed um, in life because we think highly of ourselves. But I think at the same time, we have to look, look listen, and apply to what other people think of us. And now that I look back at it, you know, it was a blessing to me that he saw that in me because at that point in time, I didn't have the sense of direction to know that, but he did because he'd been there, he'd seen it, he knew what the profession called for, and he knew I had some of the talents. So in addition to being humble, I think we have to be good listeners, listeners um, in life to understand, you know, when people are trying to talk to us and help us as opposed to when they're criticizing us to hurt us. 
Yeah, that that reminds me of a of a saying that I've heard that the the difference between criticism and constructive criticism is how you receive it, right? No like, doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that that's that's great stuff right there, Coach. Um, do you do you feel like? Um, well, give us your definition of mental toughness, not not the dictionary definition, but what's mental toughness to you? Mental toughness to me is being able to withstand and endure adversity of any kind. You know, I mean, mental toughness in sports is pushing yourself to do one extra 110 or getting into the fourth quarter. Uh, mental toughness in sports also is being able to sit and say, yes, sir, when you're offended by something somebody says to you instead of trying to talk back and give an explanation. But I think, you know, when you look at it from the standpoint of, you know, a man, a father, a husband, mental toughness is knowing that there are going to be things that maybe you don't have the answer to, but you're going to have to lead. You're going to have to carry and conduct yourself in the right way because other people are feeding off of you. And I think all those things kind of tie in it together. You know, when you look at it, you know, adversity has a way of bringing out people's true colors. And at the end of the day, mental toughness is adversity, not being able to expose you for anything other than what you're displaying yourself. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good stuff. Do you, do you feel like athletes have changed over the years? Are they, are they more, mental tough, more mentally tough, less mentally tough? Is it just different? What, what are athletes like compared to 20 years ago when you started, 20, 25 years ago? You know, I just think it's the evolution of time. You know, I think athletes probably as a whole um, have gotten better. Um, you know, you, you're going to have your exceptions of guys like Deion Sanders. You're going to have your exceptions of guys like Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson, who are just born once in a lifetime type of guys. But as a whole, I think, you know, guys are now bigger. They're stronger. They're faster. I think back, I'm a track guy as well. And I think back of when I come out of high school and when I ran track in college, just some of the times that were run. And you knew when somebody ran a time, your mouth kind of went open like, wow. But you look at it now and those same times we thought were fast back in the day are common times that people are running now. And I think if you look at sports across the board, period, they're kind of like that. But I think the biggest difference now and back then is the hunger that people had to be successful in sports. And what was at stake? You know, for me, getting a scholarship was the ultimate goal. And um, I'm coming from a small town in South Carolina. My cousin, Tony Rice, was the quarterback at Notre Dame. And, you know, that was my idol. That's the guy I looked up to because I had seen him go on to play college football, saw him play on television out of a small town like ours. So he was the role model for me. And, but he was like the only guy within a reachable distance that I could look to. I could look at players at Clemson in South Carolina, but I didn't know these people or whatever. So, you know, we were just going for the scholarships. There was no cell phones. There were not a lot of distractions. And I think that's the thing. You know, even when you think back to being a little kid, just the hunger of being able to play outside with your relatives or just being able to get outside on the playground at school and play football. Me going to a high school game on Friday nights, I never watched the game because we played football over on the side of the fence with anything <laughs> that we could find. The little plastic footballs they used to throw or even a Coke cut wheat ball up and just do that. That was a yeah. way of life. And just being able to wear that high school uniform and just to have any shot at grasping the attention of college recruiters is what we based everything on. You know, there were just not a lot of distractions. Whereas you look now and you're talking about as early as 10 years ago, when you start taking social media 
um, into the play and just all the things that come with being an athlete now. You think about it. These kids are immortalized at 15 and 16 years of age. You know, they've got offers from all over the place. Um, they got people's fan bases following them and they become instant celebrities before they've had a chance to take the gradual steps that it takes to become successful. And I think to a fault, you know, that kind of waters down their hunger a little bit because you can take a guy in the ninth or 10th grade and if he has a good showing at a combine or if he's got certain measurables, he may get an offer. Well, your next thing you know, we creatures of habit in college football, he's got one offer. Next thing you know, he's got 12 and he hasn't played his first junior year football game yet. And he had a minimal success as a sophomore and based on potential, people are offering him all these scholarships and he just looks at himself every day and kids just tend to go about things differently. You know, I can remember when I was that age, you know, we didn't even have cell phones, you know, much less being able to look at yourself um, on a computer. You know, the only thing you could hope back in those days was to maybe get your name in the paper on Saturday morning after playing on Friday night. So I think the whole thing now has kind of gotten into more of a showcase than it was back in that days. And it's not these kids fault. It's just become the way of the world. You know, they're celebrated as high school prospects, just like guys are celebrated for playing college football. And I think that kind of takes away a little bit of the hunger to be successful. You bring up, bring up a whole bunch of good points there. I remember, I remember on Friday nights when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, going to that high school game. And yeah, I would watch a couple plays, but I was the same as you. I was over there playing. But what I was doing was dreaming about playing under those lights someday. If I could just no, play no. under those lights, if I could just get a chance, man, that would be great. You know, and then when I got to that, then it was like, man, if I could just – get to college and get a chance to have my school paid for, man, that would be it. And then, you know, and then little by little you, you grow, but now it's like an eighth grader, you know, he runs a four, six and he's got some measurables and all of a sudden he's got all these offers and it's not even, it's not even a dream to play on Friday night anymore. Right. It's already, it's already like right there. And, uh, right. and, and everybody's hunger. dream is to capitalize on the opportunities that, that they already assume are going to be there for them. You know, for you and I, we were just hoping to grasp the attention of a college scout. Whereas now, with all the recruiting services and everything that's out there to add to, you know, the recruiting process, it's almost hard for them to fail. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good point. That's why, that's why I think the other thing that I think is important, and the reason why I think your voice is so important to this, this whole messaging is that if they have the wrong guy in their ear, right, if they have the wrong team around them, it can be disastrous to their, to their whole success and to their, to their mindset and all those things. And so that's why I love, that's why I love what you're doing. It's really, it's, it's very cool. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on what you look for when you're looking for a young man to recruit? I mean, obviously if you're making the phone call or you're going to the school to talk to this kid, you think he can play, but what are the, what are the, what are the tools or what are the things that you're looking for once you get there? One word, a captain. You know, I'm, I'm searching for a captain. And that's one of the things that working at Duke University enabled me to do, but at the same time enabled me to realize that you can do and still be successful. And when I say a captain, I don't mean the guy that walks across the field holding his buddy's hands on Friday night. When I say a captain, I mean a guy that when I go into a school, when I ask the lady at the front desk, the guidance counselor, the high school coach, the janitor, uh, the ladies in the lunchroom, the guy directing traffic in the parking lot. When I ask them to describe this young man to me, everything that they say 
is positive. You know, he's going to be a leader. He's a good listener. He does the things that he's supposed to do. I think that's very important. I think uh, oftentimes the pressure to sign guys because they're talented uh, causes us to go away from standards. And because of that, you end up compromising not only, you know, your integrity as a recruiter, but you, you compromise the integrity of your room. Because if you bring a good player into a program and he's a guy that doesn't do things the right way, he's going to be leading your team eventually because he's going to be successful. And he's going to be around his teammates a lot more than you are as the leader and the coach. He's with them on Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night, and you're not. And that's when a lot of guys uh, make good or bad decisions on those nights, you know, in college. So I think you got to be very, very consistent in what you're bringing in because in order for us to win at our level, we have to have a certain culture established. And I think when you're recruiting, for me in particular, I want guys that are one day going to become good leaders because they help you to recruit. They help you play. You don't have to waste a lot of time and capital on teaching them to do things that they're supposed to do, such as academics, going to class, behaving in study hall. Those things can take up a lot of time if you've got a lot of guys on your team that don't do those things right. Because as an assistant coach and the head coach, you're responsible for their performance in that way. So I think you have to stick to a blueprint of what you're recruiting so that the culture and the climate of your team and your room is exactly what you want to be. So that's the one word I look for. Coach is here, captain. Yeah. How hard is it? Because I, I and I've said in a couple of the other interviews on this, on this conference that I could go around and I could talk to every head coach and almost every single assistant coach and talk X's and O's and I'd have a blast. And I'd say, okay, so I'm going to throw trips at you. I'm going to go to the short side of the field. I'm going to throw this at you. And you're like, oh, we're going to roll, you know, we're going to roll to this coverage. We're going to shut you down with this. And I could have a blast. I feel like if, if, if someone is coaching college football, X's and O's are, are like, a minimum requirement, but the ones that seem to stand out to me are the ones that establish culture. How hard is that to establish and how hard is it to, to get the right guys in and, and, and have you missed, have you failed on that a few times? You know, I think culture is only hard to establish when you deviate from it. And that's where the pressure come in, you know, to be successful, to win, and, you know, I've had good leaders. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work for some good guys, none more importantly than David Cutcliffe the last 12 years and 14 years of my 23-year career. And, you know, it's just who he was. It's what he was about. And, you know, we got to the point to where it was the only way. And he made us understand and believe that sticking to that blueprint, we as a staff would outlast a lot of people. We would beat a lot of people that may have been more talented than us in the fourth quarter because our Thursday night, our Friday night during the course of the week over a year's time would end up meeting our opponents. And I think what ends up happening is you have to kind of stick to the blueprint. Not saying that there won't be some, you know, exceptions here and there, but you have to know exactly what you want. And I think kind of along the lines of what you're saying when it comes to establishing culture, you have to be happy where your feet are yourself, you know, as a coach. I think a lot of times the reasons that coaches take um, a lot of these at-risk guys so often is they're trying to get somewhere else themselves. You know, it's not necessarily always the pressure to win. It's the uh, ambition to succeed, you know, for guys, whether they're trying to get a new title, whether they're trying to get a new job, whether they're trying to get a promotion, they're trying to win quick. And I think when you get in this promotion, I mean, when you get in this profession, you've got to kind of look at it and say, okay, why am I doing this? 
And I think your why is a big reason for your results. If your why is doing this because you're passionate about making young men better people and you're passionate about being a mentor and you're passionate about, you know, looking at guys 10 years later, knowing that you made a difference in their life, you're going to be okay sticking the standard. But I think if your why is because you're trying to get X amount of dollars or you're trying to buy a certain house or you're trying to get yourself a boat or whatever, I think it's a little bit different because you're always going to be compromising those standards because it's not an overnight process. It's never been an overnight process. It's never going to be an overnight process. But I think when you look at successful programs, whether, that, whether it's Alabama, you know, or whether it's Clemson, when you get to know these coaches as we do on this level and you know how they do things, the fans may see it and think that you're doing it purely from a recruiting standpoint and you're doing it purely from, you know, X's and O's, but you know the type of people that it takes to win. You know, I think if you look at Nick Saban in particular, Nick Saban has had a large array of coaching turnover, but he's consistently won. And I think if you look at Coach Sweeney at Clemson, the way he's doing things, you know, because I'm a South Carolina guy, Coach Sweeney uh, didn't win overnight. You know, it took a while to get there. I mean, I think uh, I can remember Steve Spurrier towing with him on a regular basis because Clemson couldn't beat South Carolina. But never did you see Coach Sweeney deviate from the blueprint he had for success. And now that he's got that in the play, everybody else is trying to mock that. Yeah, yeah. What's what, Coach? What is your what is your biggest failure so far, and what lessons did you learn, and how did that make you more mentally tough? You know, I think the biggest failure. I don't think there's one in particular because I'm one of those guys that always try to find a positive and a negative, and I truly believe that your failures are your education. But I'd say the biggest failure that I personally endure as a coach is when you lose a kid. And I'm not talking about losing a kid in recruiting. I'm talking about losing a kid that you're coaching, losing a kid that you've had a chance to try to pour into or that you've had an opportunity to try to make better and you don't get it done. I mean, I think those are the things that when I think about them, even right now, I'm sitting here and I'm visualizing these young men and I'm like, what could I have done different? What didn't I say enough? How could I have gone about this differently? And, and, there's probably five or six examples that stick out to me. And I would call those the biggest failures because I feel like had I been a little more mature, maybe I could have got something through to them. I felt like had I been a little more hands-on. And the reason I feel like that is because I don't think you ever come up with a right answer. <laughs> you know, I think you'll rehearse it over and over in your head. And I think if I'm fortunate enough to turn 75, 80 years of age, I'll still be looking at it and I'll say, you know, what could I have done differently? So those are the things that stick out in my mind as failures more than anything else. Yeah, I think I think the the, the biggest enemy to a coach and to a player is that that uh, the the words "I've arrived," right? <laughs> like as soon as you think that, as soon as you think that, you're in a little bit you're in a little bit of trouble. So, um, God, that's that's good stuff. And you know, just just the fact that you're thinking about individual players and. And, and thinking about those individual, uh, you know, and I don't like to call them failures. It's, it's lack of a better term, right? Because you win or you learn. You don't win or you lose to me. Um, but I think it's, um, I think that's cool that you're thinking about individual players on a constant basis, right? Because you're working with a team of guys, right? You're working with a bunch of guys in your room, but you've got to individually be able to deliver the message to each one of those guys, right? Yeah, you've got to be able to individually deliver the message to each one of them. Each one of the stories is different. You know, that's the unique part about it. I mean, you can get up in front of a group and address a group to talk about something. But I think it's very important and very essential that you get to know your players individually because there may be something that they need from you individually 
um, to help them to become successful. And I'm one of those guys, I take a lot of pride in my personal relationships with my players. You know, the way I look at it is I'm the last line of mentorship they have before they enter the real world. And when you go into a situation where you're recruiting, you make promises to parents as to what you're going to be. And knowing, you know, at 35, 45 years of age, that what you did as a 21-year-old football player doesn't have a lot of bearing on your life at that point in time. You know, again, that chapter closes and a new one open, but it's hard to get guys to see that far. I think one of the things that we all have to do, you know, as coaches is try to get guys to understand that the vision must be broader than their sight. And I think, uh, you know, they can see four years from now, they can see the possibility of the NFL. They can see graduation and a nice job with a nice salary, but they can't visualize everything that's going to come, you know, along that path and after that, you know, and I think that's one of the things as coaches, we've got to try to paint that picture for us. So, and each story is different, you know, whether it's a guy that walks on and doesn't play that much or whether it's a guy that's your superstar, you're still accountable for all those guys. And all of those guys need something that you can't get on a chalkboard and teach them. Would you rather have a guy in your room that's not a great athlete with a great attitude and, and, and a work ethic or a guy that's a phenomenal athlete with maybe lacking in some of those categories of great attitude? Well, in a perfect world, I'd have a balance of each. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I think um, either way you go, I think you can work it out to get the best of the best from them. You know, um, it's tough to take a guy that does everything right but just can't run and win ball games. Right. But at the same time, it's tough to take a guy that can really, really run but doesn't like to go to class or doesn't see the importance in getting his education. So I think uh, it's a mixture of each. You know, for me, I'd like to have a guy that brought the ability um, to the table, but probably the way I would word is, but that's willing to get better in the other aspects. I think the problem comes when a person isn't willing, you know, to compromise to get better. And the thing that sports does, when you're a tremendous athlete and you're not willing, if you keep your nose clean for just three years, you're good enough to become a millionaire. You know? and, and, and that's how it goes. You know, guys may not do anything to get themselves, um, you know, eliminated from a football team, but at no point in time have they completely bought into the things you're trying to teach them that it takes to become a man a father, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, and it only takes three years for them to, like I said, reach what they feel like is the ultimate dream for them. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. If I were to go back to, to Ole Miss or back to your high school days and I was to talk to your peers, they, they would say, what would they say to me? Derek will be successful because he blank. What would they refuse say to, to me? Refuse to let anybody outwork you. Hard work. That's what I would say. You know, I, I understood my strengths. I understood my weaknesses, but I just had a few things in my mind, you know, growing up that was important to me. Um, and I always stood by that, you know, something simple as, you know, I, I refused to lose a 110 or a gasser. And it just was the way I was. I never talked to anybody about it, but it was something that I knew I could do. You know, in high school, um, I was always with the older guys. So even though I was fast amongst my peers, I was just okay with the older guys or whatever. So I had to run hard. I had to work hard. So I think that's kind of the foundation for my conditioning. And I was little, you know, and uh, as I grew and got faster, got a little bit bigger, you know, I became the faster guy, but I still had that blueprint for 
you know, work ethic. And when I went to college, you know, I got there and again, I was small and I wasn't the fastest guy when I got to Ole Miss on our team, but I felt like I could be in the best condition. And so that was just kind of always my mindset because I think you excel at the things that you can control. I think the problem a lot of people run into is when you set goals to try to be great at something and you can't control that or whatever, it doesn't happen when you want it to happen, but I can control whether somebody outworks me or not. And your mindset has to be that when you look at not being successful, do you term it failure or do you term it education of what you need to do to get better? You know, and that's just the way I've always been. I was, I played defensive back and you know, when I got beat, I never said, okay, that's something he did great. I always said that's something I didn't do right. And that's just really the way I thought. Now, when I got older and looked back at it and realized some of the guys I was playing against, I was like, wow, he was just better than me. <laughs> you know, but at that point in time, that's just not the way I thought. And I think even still now, that's kind of the way I think, you know, I think a lot of people can complain about gifts that you don't have. I think a lot of people get discouraged about, you know, people identifying weaknesses. I think you have to embrace your weaknesses. For me, I can look at things that I may not have naturally. I can look at things that I may not do well. And my mindset is, okay, I'm going to be as good as I can be at those things, but I'm going to take the things that I do well to a different level. So I'm going to always be able to do something better than other people. And I'm going to make sure over time that people realize that. And you stand firm on that. I think as good as you may be in anything, there's always going to be somebody to find a flaw in you. That's the world we live in. That's how commentators make money. That's how critics make money. But you can't be weak-minded enough to succumb to that and let it change who you are. Yeah, I like that. Accentuate your positives, accentuate your strengths, work on your weaknesses, but accentuate those. I, I think that's, that's fantastic stuff. Why do you think hard work, like, I, I mean, we hear a lot of people talk about hard work. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody out there that says, oh, that's like a magic formula, but what does it do to us fundamentally? How does it change us? Like, because I do, I, I totally believe in hard work, but what, what do you think? Why do you think that changed you? Why do you think that that has made you successful when, when maybe other people didn't have that hard work in them? I think um, for the most part, hard work changes you because you see so many people that don't possess that attribute. And even if they do possess it, hard work is something that you have to maintain over a consistent time. It has to become a character trait. You know, you can't be a guy that works hard during football season and then all of a sudden just slouches off. And I think just realizing that you're in competition daily with people that you don't see. And I think the competitive nature has to creep in at that point in time because a lot of people taper off when they're as good as everybody around them. You know, a lot of people taper off when they become the leader, when they become that head coach, when they become that high school principal or whatever else, and they stop getting better because they've reached the pinnacle. But I think if you condition yourself to understand that you're always in competition with somebody. I'm one of those people that believes that there's somebody born every day that wants to position a title, I hope. And I've always thought like that. So I think that's going the extra mile. And I'm not talking about to the extent of, you know, doing anything that's out of character for you. But I think the fear of complacency for me has always been, you know, my niche. You know, hard work is something that's a part of who I am. But I realize, as you said, that it's a part of a lot of other people's chemical makeup as well. So I realize I'm not the only person that works hard. And even though I may look at myself and realize my hard work is elevating me past my peers in that moment, there are people in other places that I don't see that may possess something. So 
I think competing with that, which you don't see all the time, is the difference. That's interesting that you bring that up. I, I remember when I was in junior college, when I was working out, when I was working out in the offseason and throwing the football and, and playing quarterback, I had invented some quarterback in Alabama. <laughs> I don't know why. I invented some quarterback in Alabama that was bigger, stronger, and faster than me and that was working harder than me. And it was my motivation to do that extra slant work, right? It was that, it was that motivation for me to do the extra weight room work or to, to work out in the middle of the day instead of early in the morning so that it would be hot, so that I'd be working through myself mentally and I like that. I, I called him my shed. He, he was the shadow QB. He was the one that like nobody knew about that I was competing against because I felt like I was going to win my spot at my school, but I wanted to be the best I could be, not just the best on my team. And so that, that, that's a really interesting thought that you, ha that you have that because I, I created a fictional character. He was always working harder than me. He always, he always was like taking one more rep and I was like, oh man, I got to keep up with him, man. I can't can't let him pass me you know and so that's a that's a really cool thing do you have you know you talked about your high school coach you talked about coach Cutcliffe you talked about some of these guys are are there any coaches out there that you find yourself like repeating their phrases or saying things that they said uh you know as far as mental toughness goes and the mental game goes to help your players you know I think all of us um have to be as you spoke earlier you have to be humble um, in any profession. But I think football is one of those professions that you have to be more humble than anything else because everybody wants to be the guy. Everybody wants to be the guy that people talk about. Everybody wants to see, you know, their quotes in books years after they're done doing what they do. But, man, I think you always have to be open-minded enough to listen to other people. You know, one of the things about me is I am always going to try to mimic uh, people who are successful at what I want to be successful at. And I think you can get to the point to where maybe you become so successful in your own mind, you don't listen to anybody but yourself. And I think that's when you stop um, growing. You know, if you're listening, you're learning. If you're not listening, you're not learning. So, I mean, there are tons of people and it's not necessarily, you know, me quoting anybody because I, I think I probably talk too much myself to quote anybody else <laughs> more than anything else. But, you know, I just think about, you know, Coach Cutcliffe in particular, again, you know, just hearing things that he says or whatever. But I try to follow, follow models, I think, more so than words, because I do think as a coach, your words are what your players are going to harp on. And I'm one of those guys. I don't want my guys to harp on my words for three, four, or five years. I want my guys to harp on my words for life. So for me, I make a point of repeating myself a lot just so I know that if I repeat myself a lot, they're going to take it in. And one of the things I believe in coaching is when you get players to the point to where they can finish your sentences, you're getting through to them. And I guarantee you I can call 20 guys on the phone right now and I start off a sentence and they'll be able to finish it. And those guys aren't playing football no more. Those guys aren't coaching football. They're husbands, they're fathers, they're in the corporate world. So I've kind of got a pattern of the things that I say and why I say the things that I say. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's, I think that's really cool. It's interesting because you, you talk about, you know, I love to talk too. And I, I've seen plenty of your, your tweets out there talking about listening. And I, and I really feel like there's two things that I've really been working on because I do, I do feel like I talk a lot, but one is listening. Like you said, it helps you be humble. It helps you to learn. And then two, 
one of the things that I try and, and tell my players that I work with in the mental game is that the great ones ask great questions, right? You want, you want great results, ask great questions. And so I, I, I really love that. I'm, I'm working on becoming better at asking questions. I'm working better on listening when I ask those questions. And I think that's where some huge growth can happen for me personally. And that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean that people that are great orators and, and can talk and can coach aren't really good at, at what they're doing. I'm just saying for me personally, I like what you're talking about because when I listen and when I ask good questions, then I, I can get better because then I can go and put an action plan together. Right. I think, I think the beauty now um, in social media, you know, one of the things that has helped people for countless years is reading, you know, and reading. That's why books of coaches, books of leaders and everything are, are so instrumental in our growth and development. But now with social media, you have a whole different avenue of learning from um, elite people. I mean, you can go to podcasts, you can go Google somebody's name and they've got voiceovers. So there's so many ways to go find out things about people that you admire now to take advantage of. And I think that's one of the things that uh, I do probably more than most is I go research to people that I admire and I listen to them, you know, how they go about yeah. things and like to hear their stories. But even if it's as simple as going to read something that they've written or an article, you know, that somebody has done on them. And I think you can do a whole lot to broaden your whole resume by that. You know, some people aren't readers. Some people don't feel like they have time to read, but we're all riding in a car at some point in time. And I probably got a lot of that from my wife, to be honest with you. You know, my wife uh, started getting into this Dave Ramsey thing of listening to him finance. And it, it got on my nerves so bad because we'd be driving somewhere, uh, going to South Carolina or going to Mississippi to visit her family. And she'd just be listening to this guy talk. And so instead of getting mad about it, uh, I said, okay, well, I'm gonna start listening to my own people because I don't want to hear that. So I just started to go find podcasts and I started to go find coaches talking and coaches talking about other coaches and even other leaders. And that's been very, very enhancing to me. God, that's awesome. But, you know, to be honest with you, the only reason that I'm able to get a hold of you is through social media and through friends. You know, that's, that's the reason why this interview happens. And I've followed you for a long time. And um, yeah, you, you, you can research. I tell people all the time, like, there's never been more garbage and more smut and more negativity on the internet and social media, but on the converse, there's never been more good. There's never been more positivity and there's never been more resources for athletes to read about, to follow and to learn from the great ones. And, and so you, you can choose, you can choose what you want to follow. You can choose what you want to read. So two quick questions that follow up to that. What, what books have you read or have you been reading lately that have helped you mentally? You know, uh, I think Tony Dungy's book um, is probably one that, you know, we can all benefit from. Um, you know, Barack Obama, you know, looking at uh, his information, because you're talking about ultimate leaders uh, in the sense there. But, you know, for me, it's probably more so of just trying to identify somebody that has not only been successful, but somebody that has overcome odds. Because I think that's the thing that we all fail to realize when we have a hunger for success. We look at the ultimate prize and we look at, you know, the position that these people are in. But I think when somebody tells their story and you're able to tap into that story, you find out about what got them to where they are. And a lot of times you read a lot about things that didn't come naturally to these people that they were able to adapt and adjust to. And I think that just helps to strengthen yourself. 
Yeah, I love that. Love that. Um, if you could go back 20 years and talk to a young Derek and, and give yourself <laughs> advice, what, what would you say? What would be the one sentence? What would be the, 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 little, the little paragraph that you'd say, hey, man, just remember this and, and things will work out? I would have said to – I'm 45, so I would have said to a 25-year-old Derek Jones to think like you're 35 when you're 25 and to think like you're 45 when you're 35. Because I think um, a lot of the decisions and choices that I made back then, I was not thinking with my vision, I was thinking with my sight. You know, going back to what I told you earlier, mm -hmm. but now that I know and I slow down things and I put things into slow motion, you know, I probably would have gotten involved in some things a little bit faster, probably would have set some other things aside, you know, because I was probably more so into doing what I wanted to do than doing what I had to do. I wasn't a bad person or anything like that. But now right. that I look at it, you know, I should have been more focused on becoming great, not good, is what I would say, um, at what I'm doing now, as opposed to living off of what I'd already accomplished. You know, it's easy when you come out of a situation where people think very highly of you, you can start to think highly of yourself. But I think just being able to maintain, as I talk to you about that hunger, and that consistency for success and understanding, you know, that you're competing with people that don't see you. I think that's something that has to be in you. But at the same time, I look back at it now and it's a maturity process. So I can pass yeah. those things on to others now. Yeah. One of the other coaches I talked to said that, you know, college football and life is a race to maturity, right? <laughs> I completely agree. You know, it's like, if you can, if you can handle school and if you can handle social media and if you can handle you know, all the things that are going on in college football, and then you can really focus on the field and race to that maturity, then, then, then you're going to get a chance to be successful. And then he says, and then it starts all over when you get done with college football, whether you go to play pro football, whether you go into the professional world, it starts all over and you got to race to maturity. You got to learn how to do the things that nobody else wants to do to, to carry the bags as a red shirt, if you will. Right. And yeah, and, man, and, I mean, life, life is a book for us and, we're writing chapters until we can't write anymore. I mean, the thing about the book of life, it doesn't end until you're gone. And I think yeah. most people don't realize that. And, you know, we all have a goal, but we never look beyond that goal. You know, and I think when you're early 20s or some of these guys are right now, how, how can you think about being 65 years old and retiring? You know, because that seems boring to them. <laughs> you know, but I think when you do things the right way and you come to terms with it, you know, you're always okay where you are. I mean, I, I can remember a time when I couldn't have imagined being 45 years old. I thought that was old. And, right. and now that I'm 45, I don't feel old, but I look back at being younger and I laugh at myself because of how little I knew. So it's a balance. Yeah, yeah it is a balance. So two more questions. I want to ask you, um, the first question, talk to me about consistency. How do you build that? How does that, how does that become part of your DNA? Or can you? I think the fear of failure uh, builds consistency more than anything else. I think because when you look back at where you failed, uh, where you've come up short, or even when you look at other people from observation and realize where they've come up short, there's always an example of inconsistency. So I think when you fear something, I think that drives you to be successful at it. And I think consistency is one of those things. You know, for me, when I got on social media and really started to use um, Twitter 
from a recruiting standpoint, that's the one thing I said to myself. I said, well, you know, I can be more consistent at this than my competitors. I can be more creative at this than my competitors. And I knew I was willing to stay where I was for a long period of time to be able to develop it into a brand. And I think that's exactly why you know who I am now. You know, I don't want to get up every morning, you know, before I have to and put something up. But to me, getting up, putting quotes up on Twitter is like brushing my teeth in the morning. You know, yep. it's just like doing anything routine that I do. And I don't care if we're in vacation on Europe, uh, if we're in St. Lucia, it doesn't matter. I'm going to discipline myself to find out when my listeners are going to be up and when I need to put this information out. And I'm not doing it counting likes. I'm not doing it worried about how many people um, are paying attention. I'm doing it just to maintain consistency because I realize the benefits of being consistent. So, again, I just go back to being competitive and then the fear of failure or whatever. And what it does, it helps you to establish something that not many people are going to rival you at because one of the things that you'll find out in life when you get into business or anything else is most people just aren't going to be consistent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that goes along with like the create more than you consume. Right. So instead of, instead of getting up and consuming Twitter, you're creating on Twitter. I love it. Yeah. And most people, most people, it's funny, man, because I do a lot of talks and I get recognized a lot by this. And most people just think I'm up on Twitter all day long and they think I'm just, <laughs> you know, up shooting guns and recruiting. All. That's not me at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that person at all. I, I mean, I literally get up in the morning and um, I'll put, four quotes up and I know they're going to rotate all day and they just kind of come to me. They kind of stem. If I think of one during the course of the day, you know, I may put it in my notes and copy and paste it the next day or whatever, but that's it. And it's not like I'm consuming a lot of hours towards this. I'm just doing something that I know is going to work for not only myself, but the institution I'm working for, for a broad amount of hours. Now, now that I've taken the Texas Tech job and we're on quarantine, I'm a little bit more active because we're all trying to compete with one another to keep your brand out there. And like right. I say, with my following, that helps us. But I'm pretty sure once we get back in the office at Texas Tech, you won't see me tweeting a lot at noon, one, two, or three o'clock in the afternoon. Sure, sure. So last question. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough time right now. It's a confusing time. There's, there's a, a lot of fear of the unknown. There's, there's a lot of people losing 401ks, there's people losing their businesses and losing loved ones to, to, to the coronavirus. Um, any advice or any thoughts to those out there that might be struggling today or have lost a job or lost a business and, and are struggling? Uh, force yourself to find the positive and the negative. I think every day, uh, any of us, regardless of what has happened, can wake up and find something we can complain about. But at the same time, all of us, can find 10 things that we can be grateful for. And I think it's a mindset, you know, think about you could have lost a business. Think about you um, may have lost money in your 401k, but somebody has lost a mother. Somebody has lost a father. Somebody has lost a grandparent or whatever. And even if you've lost a loved one, you've still got others to build your circle around in your foundation. And it's hard because you get angry when things like this happen um, that you can't control. But I think the other thing you have to do is you have to learn to control the controllables, you know, in your life. And you have to learn and accept that some point in life, there are going to be things you can't control that hits you in the form of adversity that you're going to have to get over. And I think when you set your mind to knowing that adversity is going to come your way at some point in time, 
it enables you to be prepared for that adversity when it comes. You don't have to know exactly what it is, but you're going to have a bunch of different defense mechanisms, mechanisms of how to handle this and how to deal with it. And I think that's the thing you got to do. It's as simple as your attitude. You know, a lot of people can say why something happened, whereas a lot of people can look at the situations and say, you know, it happened. How are we going to get past it? And I think as long as you ask and why in life, they're not going to be any answers for you because who's going to answer? You know, the world is going to keep spinning regardless whether you evolve or not. So yeah. I think you have to develop a mentality, an attitude and character that enables you to be able to revolve with the world. And that's having a positive mindset. Yeah, I love that. I mean, a lot of people ask why, not very many people ask why not, right? Why not me? And then I think the other thing that I, that I, that I really believe in my years of being in sports psychology is that, and I, and I think you were tapping on this just perfectly, is that adversity is coming. What's your plan? I've never met a great individual. I've never met a great team. I've never met a great organization that doesn't have adversity and hasn't fought through adversity but what's your plan? And I think that plan is actually positivity. Everybody thinks positivity is like Pollyanna stuff and sunshine, flower, rainbows, and glitters, right? But I think positivity is having a plan. So when adversity hits, what's your plan? You're going to stand tall, right? Chin up, shoulders back. You're going to be ready for that? Or are you, going to, are you just going to let it hit you and you don't, know, you don't have a plan? Because adversity is coming. You, me, everybody, we're, we're, we're going to have it. And, and, and some of us, it seems like we have a little bit more, but when you have a plan, like you're saying, it's a little bit easier to be positive and, and kind of work through it. So God, yeah, that's I think, I think the best leadership I've ever been blessed with is fatherhood, you know, and when I look at fatherhood, it's not going to end until I'm gone. So every day I've got to prepare myself to be a father, which is the ultimate leader you know, in my mind, you know, I love coaching. Um, I love being able to mentor those young men, but I've got to mentor mine. And what I've come to realize is my children get over it, it never stops. You know, I look at it, you know, from my own father's standpoint, you know, my father is 70 years of age and I still lean on him for advice and he's still there uh, to give me advice. But when I reflect on anything in life, I can look back and say, I never saw my father fold. I'm sure my father had problems. I'm sure my father went through adversity, but I've never seen him demonstrate it to us. I've never seen my father lose his composure. And I've always tried to model myself after that. I mean, it's not the things that he said to me. It's the things that I saw him do or didn't do that I saw other people do. And I just kind of try to be that exact model, you know, and I know that regardless of what's happening in my life, my kids are watching me. They're depending on me and things can get hit rock bottom, but I've still got to have a firm chin. I've still got to have a certain look on my face and a sound in my voice in order for me to fulfill the commitment I've made to them. And that's that I'm going to be the best father they could possibly have. Well, that's beautiful. Well, what a great way to end this interview. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Derek, for spending some time with us. I want you to get back to that family. I want you to get back to your players and enjoy them. And, and we'll all be following you on Twitter. On Twitter, it's uh, at D, what is it again? At, it's at Coach DJ Cheetah. At Coach DJ Cheetah. DJ Cheetah. Derek Jones, ladies and gentlemen, he is a great follow. Follow him on Twitter. And uh, Coach, thanks for taking some time. We'll, we'll, we'll be watching and we'll be cheering for your progress and for your wins this fall. Man, I sure appreciate you, man. And stay safe out there. So nice to meet you, Coach. Take care of yourself. I, I appreciate you. Thanks.